0: So we have a field that we've cultivated, and within this field, there's a lot of vitality and a tremendous amount of warmth. You know, so initially when people come, oftentimes people are a little bit saturated with the kind of um, stuff of the life that they've just um, kind of left. Come here, and and the system is a little bit. Um, out of, out of sorts, so it needs rest, it needs settling, and it needs a, a fair amount of nourishment oneself. We're depleted, we come depleted. And then having received some uh, nourishment, settled, and then there's a tremendous amount of energy that bubbles. And so you can see, at this point, there is no need to smile at people, because the sense of empathetic connection with people is extraordinarily sensitive. We can feel each other, and perceive each other, and radiate warmth to each other and from each other without needing to make direct contact. Yeah, And so in that way, we can work with restraint, not as a way of numbing ourselves down, or as a way of shutting ourselves off, or because we don't want to feel, but very much because we feel exquisitely. And that amount of contact is not necessary. So one can feel the radiance of warmth of being in another person's presence without needing to make any direct contact at all. And so you can see how these things shift and change. And when there's this much sensitivity and openness and receptivity, then we can relate with each other in that kind of way, which is incredibly responsive and respectful, but not at all personally engaging. And we can see what it's like just to feel warmth as a person enters into a sphere, and yet not engage on a personality level, or even just in terms of, of signaling that we see each other. Our energy can respond and say that we see each other without our eyes having to do that. Yeah. So there's a trusting of a kind of receptivity and responsiveness that changes as our own capacity changes. And we see how that happens not only with the way we interact with each other, but also the way that we interact and respond inwardly to the variety of things that are arising. This is a live practice. It's a responsive practice. It's a dynamic practice. It's not at all static. Now, what I wanted to talk about tonight is um, just I wanted to reflect on a phrase that um, I've heard Lumpur Cha say, or I've heard that he has said, which is meaningful to me. And the phrase that he said is, is, is that if you let go a little, you'll have a little bit of peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So when I contemplate on this phrase, and I consider, well, what does it mean to let go a little? It brings me to mind of what it's like to cultivate sila. So when we take on the precepts intentionally, and we begin to make clear boundaries about what is skillful and unskillful, and we stop going into um, activities and speech which are harmful or unskillful, we can see immediately that when we do this kind of thing, it has an immediate result. And the immediate result is, is that there's less regret, there's less remorse, there's less confusion in our systems, And as a result of that, there's more peace. So, you know, refraining from harming, from taking life, from stealing, from taking things that are not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. You know, there's an enormous amount of anguish that happens when there's sexual misconduct. So when we refrain from doing that, immediately that anguish has some container around it. For many people, refraining from incorrect speech is actually one of the most difficult precepts to manage. And yet when one intentionally tries to cultivate that, one can see that there is a significant difference in terms of one's family and community when one is not speaking about things which are harsh or divisive or untrue. And then in terms of, you know, on a retreat situation where there's an encouragement to maintain noble silence and contain speech, and we can see the amount of energy that gets dissipated through speaking. And then when we reflect about the kind of things that happen in our day-to-day conversations, we realize that a lot of it actually fits into the category of useless prattle. And so, you know, it's a reflection. How do you engage with something which is not useless prattle? But we're also not saying, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritually superior being. <laughs> you know, where we can actually just hang out and chit-chat, because that's actually the way people relax with each other and develop some rapport and contact. and the fifth precept to refrain from drinking and drugs you know one of the things about drink is, is is that it's the one thing that if we are engaging in drink it dissolves all the capacity to keep the other precepts and so it's an interesting contemplation of you know what's considered not keeping the precept and different people have different takes on that you know getting smashed or having a sip of wine. You know, and it's not for us to determine for you what is your understanding, but it's just to reflect that, you know, when there's an uprightness with these precepts, then the result is, is that there's less confusion and more capacity. And that's the point. Yeah. So another thing is, is when we let go of the kind of monkey mind that's grabbing hold of us, and we have more capacity to be present with what is happening and you can notice that you know a little bit more concentration and the colors brighten the sounds brighten the food tastes better how the food could taste better i don't know but the food tastes better you know and the sound of a bird or just you know the uh, uh, the the color of the light as it's passing through a frozen drop on the f- on the on the branch You know, it's like it it catalyzes this little moment of rapture. And the reason why it catalyzes this moment of rapture is because we don't have this monkey grabbed hold of our head and swinging it around in circles. (laughs) You know, so just the capacity to stay present with things as they are and to bear with that monkey until it gets off your back. You know, it, it allows the, the letting go enough to be able to be present with sense contact as it arises. And there's a joy in that. There's a peace in that, but there's also a joy in that. So when we let go a little, there's a little bit of peace, and when we let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. Now what's that mean? For me, what that relates to is the whole relationship with the emotional sphere. Now we know that emotions are things that arise and they pass, and there's nothing in them which is inherently permanent, and it's nothing to do with me or mine. And nevertheless, you know, emotions ends up being a a major uh, reason why we get tangled up into pretzels. And a major reason why we're not able to do things that we know are skillful. And a major reason why we do things that we absolutely know are unskillful. Because the power of the emotion is overriding the discriminating wisdom and discernment which knows otherwise. So when we understand emotions, it's not like saying that Well, when we understand emotions we're going to be completely free because we know that emotions arise and cease and they aren't who we are. But when we don't understand emotions, it causes absolute bedlam. So the chaos that is caused by not understanding how these things are arising and the way that they influence our systems is not peaceful. And so as one begins to allow the mechanisms that have kept things buried or hidden to relax and release, and all this stuff comes tumbling into the foyer, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a um, Uh, challenge to manage because they're rich. The whole emotional sphere is rich. And yet emotions have their own intelligence to them. And when something has been buried, it takes a little while for it to release the accumulated energy of of not being allowed. And then once it's allowed and it comes into its own place of equilibrium, one can see that it is, in fact, just something that arises and ceases. And it doesn't need to have so much charge connected to it. Now, I don't know if this is the case for every person, but for me, you know, it has been a huge learning. And I've had to develop all kinds of special practices to deal with the variety of kind of, of weird habit patterns that I have around them. And so there's some things that flow quite naturally. And so, you know, that's fine. One can just be present with them as they arise and cease and know them and allow them to dissipate. And there's other things that I had strange conditioning that just simply were not allowed. And so there's repressive mechanisms that are in place that have taken decades to learn how to decondition. And I need special practices to apply in order to help give permission to tolerate these things that were not allowed. I mean, for me, anger and sadness are too. They weren't allowed. And so with anger, for example, it would, f- would oscillate between having absolutely no clue whatsoever that I was angry and then exploding because I couldn't see it as it was actually emerging into conscious awareness. So I had to give permission to be able to tolerate the experience of anger so that I could catch it as it was coming into consciousness without having to go through the painful and often damaging experience of exploding. And then dealing with the fallout of that. And then what my other favorite tactic to do with anger was to implode. So I wouldn't allow it into conscious awareness. And I would stuff it into my body in my bones and my immune system. And then deal with fatigue and illness and immune system deficiencies for decades, because I had no clear connection with what it was that i was doing and why and all of these things are not simple things to undo it's you know it they it takes feeling into them and allowing them to emerge and getting a sense of how these mechanisms have come into place and 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 begin to to allow something else to replace them Now, for me, anger and sadness was something that was difficult to tolerate. But for other people, the way they find it difficult to tolerate is they explode. And so then, in that situation, a whole other practice is needed, which is the tolerance and the capacity to learn to contain. So rather than to verbalize or to act out, one needs the ability to hold. And so a whole different kind of of approach is needed. And so with each of the emotions that we have and with each of the specific relationship with the emotions that we have, we need to cultivate skillful ways of dealing with them so that they are allowed into conscious awareness and allowed to dissipate in conscious awareness without either suppressing or exploding. And. As I have been able to do that more, then I notice that the vitality in my system increases. And I notice the linking between things like anger and sexual desire, or anger and fear, and how these things can translate or transform into each other. So one of the things which I always find rather perplexing coming into the monastery is we have very clear boundaries around sexuality And it's very shameful to transgress them. So there's a lot of taboo around uh, projecting one's sexual energy onto another peep, onto somebody else. And it it very rarely happens. I mean, occasionally people will fall in love with each other, but it was rare. But what I found really astonishing was none of those taboos were present around anger. And so anger would fly like hotcakes off of a. (laughs) And there is no shame whatsoever. <laughs> you know, and then for myself to begin to investigate how, all right, so if something is taboo, you need somewhere else where all that's going to go. You know? And to be learn how, thus, where the switching mechanisms are. You know? So a monastic life is designed, it's absolutely designed to frustrate desire. That's what it's designed for. And so, if desire is frustrated, then there's going to be an immediate reaction to that, which is irritation. And if irritation isn't held and responded to in a way which is skillful, then it comes out in ways which are unskillful. That's natural. You know, and for any of us, if we, you know, in the springtime when we go out gardening, if we have a hose and we plug the hose and it's got a leak in it, it'll come out the biggest leak. So our systems are energy channels, and when we plug one outlet, we all of a sudden find the other outlets. And so the water that runs through is like energy in the same way emotions are like energy, and if we can't release it in one way, which is natural, then it'll come out other ways. So part of our learning is to see the switching mechanisms between the different kinds of emotions and outlets and begin to understand where the weak spots are in our own system, and develop skillful means and antidotes in order to bring more capacity to hold pressure, and also to uh, have things come out in ways which are not harmful and skillful, and then more in congruence with our own values, which is often to do with compassion and wise. And for myself, I can speak for myself, this is, has, you know, this has been a lifetime work. And I'm not finished, you know. And, you know, I have all kinds of tricks that I come up with, you know, I sing myself songs, I do all kinds of stuff. Because when there are certain kinds of things that are emerging, they require certain kinds of responses. And sometimes what happens is early patterning gets activated and all of a sudden I find myself regressed into the age of two or three. And, you know, for a a certain period of time, you know, I would approach that with, well, I shouldn't be like that, you know. I've been meditating this many years and I shouldn't be like that. And so, you know, I would do to myself, I'd go sit in your room on your cushion and sort it out. You know, well, who would <laughs> say that to a two-year-old, go sit in your cushion and sort it out? <laughs> you know, but we have this kind of weird view that, well, because my physical body is not two, then that as an emotional experience cannot arise. Well, it simply is not the case, it does arise. And so if you're dealing with a two-year-old, you need to respond and suitable for a two-year-old. You don't sit them on their cushion and tell them not to talk to anybody until they've sorted it out. (laughs) (laughs) So it's responsive and alive, and we need to actually be current with what's actually happening. And what's actually happening is oftentimes entirely different from what we think should be happening. And it's humbling, because reality often does not match up to our ideal. But the more responsive we are, then the more effective we are, and the less it takes in order to sort it out. If I take my two-year-old around for a walk at the lake, and we talk to the bunnies, (laughs) and we talk to the flowers, then in a very short period of time, everything comes just fine. Because that's what two-year-olds need. They can relate through bunnies and flowers very easily. You know, but if I give some kind of esoteric trip about Petit Samapada, it's like, (laughs) you know, how many days later I'm still wrapped up in a twist because I wasn't responding with what was needed. Yeah. So it takes a tremendous amount of responsive intelligence to be able to meet what's arising and be honest about what's actually happening, to see the patterns for what they are and to respond with appropriateness. And it is humbling. I mean, it is, it is humbling to catch oneself regressed as a two-year-old. And lo and behold, there it is. So who said it wasn't supposed to be like that? (laughs) So when we begin to open up to the whole sphere of the emotional realm, not with some preconceived idea about how it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to look and what's supposed to practice supposed to be like and how we're supposed but incredibly intelligent and responsive, my experience is a lot of peace. What is is. What is is worthy of attention. And when we respond with correct and skillful attention to what's arising, there's peace. But no matter how skillful we are with emotions, and no matter how adept we are at being able to respond to what are we arising, it's not the end of the story. Because still, there is subtle identification. This is me and mine. And even if it's my two-year-old, it's still my (laughs) two-year-old. So what is needed is to let go of everything. Now, I would venture to say, as a venture, that if I passed out pieces of paper and asked everybody to write their name down who really wanted to be enlightened, I would get back papers with every single person's name on it. And my own personal experience is that as we have to face letting go of everything, we run as fast and as hard in the opposite direction as possible. Because it's a learning to tolerate the experience of not being. not being able to locate oneself in anything. Now people have been sharing in the group interviews how, what's happening as stories are falling away. And for some, the stories are incredible. They're tragic stories. And yet, they fall away, and then There's both this wonder and a fear of what's there when the story falls away. That fear is a fear that needs to be embraced, needs to be looked at, and needs to be tolerated in increasing doses Because not only do we need to experience the fear of the story falling away, we need to experience the fear when everything falls away. Everything. When we stop locating ourselves in our physical bodies, in our physical illnesses in our historical issues in our emotional patterning in our gender in our sexual orientation in our families in our communities in our relationships he's still breathing We need to let go of our beliefs about practice and what meditation is about and what it means to be alive. Every concept, every idea, every Place that we locate ourselves is a place that we need to let go of. caterpillar spends the first part of its life getting fat eating as much as it possibly can to get as strong and as resourced and as able to manage the process of building a chrysalis and entering into a process of disillusion. And if it's a smart caterpillar, it'll build the best chrysalis in the safest place that it knows. And then it enters in and enters into a process where every aspect dissolves into a sentient pulp. It's alive and conscious, but has absolutely no resemblance to the previous form. And it stays in that chrysalis, in that sentient pulp, until a process of its own intelligence allows an emergence of something that is utterly new. Everything dissolves. And if that process is tolerated and not interrupted, something utterly new emerges. Let go a little, there is a little peace. When we let go a lot, there is a lot of peace. And when we let go completely, there is complete peace. So what is left when everything falls away? That is enough to support the emergence of something utterly new. So there are a few more days left of this retreat. The field has been cultivated, the ground is fertile. Make good use of it. Santa Dama